Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Thursday the 13th of April 1939 and Aboriginal tracker Alec Riley of Dubbo Police is all ears and eyes as he searches Max Reserve on the Macquarie River at Narromine in western New South Wales. What he's found here are the remains of a fire. From how much the grass has grown back and how much rain he knows the area has had, he can tell this blaze burned about three months ago. But it's the size that's suspicious. This wasn't a campfire used by a swaggy to cook up snags and boil a billy. This fire was made in a hollow. It measured 15 feet by 8 feet and it burned 6 inches into the ground. Clearly, it was big enough and ferocious enough to cremate a body. Sifting through the ash and digging into the charcoal-strewn dirt, Alec finds four buttons and a portion of a fifth. He finds two metal eyelets from a boot and part of a buckle and he also finds four teeth that look human. Searching closer by the river, Tracker Riley turns up old trousers, a pair of tinted eyeglasses, a muddy and burned coat, and a double section of what appears to be human backbone. Back in Dubbo, suspected murderer Albert Andrew Moss, a.k.a. Mad Mossy, is cooling his heels in Custel on minor charges of possessing stolen goods. For the moment, the exact nature of Tracker Riley's discoveries will be kept secret because he and other police have other places to search, other investigations to carry out. But if the government medical experts confirm what he and his colleagues suspect, that the remains are human and that the recovered items belonged to a man believed missing in the area, then they now have crucial evidence that might put Mad Mossy away for murder. 
I'm Michael Adams, and this is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Track O'Reilly, Outback Hero. While the arrest of murderer George Earsman and the manhunt for the last of the Bushrangers' Roy Governor were the highest-profile cases of Alec Riley's early career as a police tracker, there were plenty of day-to-day crimes and misdemeanours, along with tragic misadventures, to keep him busy during the 1920s and into the 1930s. Headlines from the Dubbo newspapers give a snapshot of his work. From the Dubbo Liberal on the 20th of November, 1923, quote, Gruesome discoveries, human leg, human body, searching solves mystery. From the Dubbo Dispatch on the 8th of August, 1924, quote, Died in the bush, Dubbo resident's fate, missing for a week. The Liberal on the 10th of September, 1926, quote, Man found in Jones Creek. The Liberal on the 23rd of March, 1928, quote, Lonely Old Digger Passes, Body Found in Macquarie River. From the Liberal on the 15th of March, 1929, quote, A River Tragedy, Woman's Body Found, Difficulty of Identification. From the Dispatch on the 10th of June, 1929, Man Slashed with a Razor, Dastardly Attack, Victim's Critical Condition, Refuses to Identify Assailant. Not all of the cases were quite so serious or had such tragic endings. The Dubbo Liberal on the 7th of February 1930 recounted Tracker Riley's involvement in apprehending a chicken rustler under the headline, quote, Foul Fancier Lives on Poultry. Four months later, the paper recounted Alec's superb tracking in the case of a youth named Bert Prest, who'd become separated from his mates and who was found safe and sound after a scary night in the bush. Through the 1930s, Tracker Riley was involved in the arrests of a safecracker and a serial stealer of sulkies, as well as the arrests of itinerants who used cyanide to kill possums and sheep for their skins, and of an oddball who set off explosions in the night and claimed this was the work of a mysterious marksman. Alec Riley didn't just gather evidence, track bad guys and assist in their arrests. His cool command of precise details also made him a reliable and trusted police witness in the court cases that followed. Away from his job, Alec was a devoted family man and husband to Dubbo Aboriginal woman Ethel Taylor, with whom he would have eight children. But while Alec Riley was a respected member of the Dubbo police whose name and reputation was known throughout the district and state, the racist segregation of the time meant that he, Ethel and their children, along with other Aboriginal families, weren't allowed to live in Dubbo itself and were instead relegated to missions or reserves. In the Riley family's case, home was the Talbrigga Reserve. There, they lived in weatherboard cottages built by the welfare board. While families took pride in keeping them clean and well-maintained, these were basic accommodations without electricity or sewage. They also had no rain tanks and all the water they needed for drinking, washing and bathing had to be hauled from the river. While the Rileys and other families grew vegetables and raised chickens, other supplies had to be gotten by traipsing into Dubbo because reserves weren't allowed to be too close to towns. That distance also made getting to and from work and school more difficult. Alec and another Aboriginal man who lived at Talbriga solved the latter problem by lobbying for a school to be established on the reserve and a teacher allocated. 
In the early hours of the morning of the 19th of January 1936, a 92-year-old partially crippled pensioner named John Hewitt was severely battered in his shack on the commons near Gilgandra Racecourse. Old Jack, as he was known, suffered a double fractured jaw, deep bruising around his eyes and five fractured ribs that resulted in his chest being partly caved in. He was dragged from his stretcher and left to die on the floor. The witness to this atrocity? That was James Earsman, father of George Earsman, serving life for the murder of Alexander Matheson, which we heard about in part one of this episode. James Earsman, now 68, lived at the racecourse where he worked as a caretaker. He'd been friends with old Jack for about six years, and his story was that around 1am he'd heard noises coming from the old man's place and gone to investigate. About four hours later, James Earsman, his face bloody, went to see John Brooks, an octogenarian pensioner, at his camp on the reserve near the racecourse and told him, quote, Old Jack is dead. An hour later, at the track, he saw a trainer named James Foran, who was working his horses and said, quote, There was hell to pay last night. They killed Jack Hewitt and bloody well nearly killed me. James Foran asked if Old Jack was actually dead. James Isman said no, but he was so badly battered he wouldn't get over it. In the coming days, James Isman would tell the police various conflicting stories about what he'd seen. The main version was that he'd seen two young men dressed in black attacking old Jack and one of these assailants had then punched him before he managed to escape. Then James had summoned one of his sons, they got a gun and returned to old Jack's place. Then he did, or didn't, notice the man was dying and or dead. Though James told his story to the old age pensioner and the horse trainer over the coming hours, what he didn't do was go to the police. That was left to his son, who around 6am alerted a constable who found old Jack dead, his pulverised face covered with a blood-soaked bag. The hut had been ransacked and two of three tins the victim was known to have kept his money in had been emptied. James Earsman claimed he hadn't gone to the police because he was afraid that the men might kill him and his son. But if that was the case, why had they gone back to the hut while they thought the attack was still in progress? At first, James Earsman said he'd seen one man in the hut. Then it was two. Then he said he thought he knew who the murderers were. Blokes called Les Brennan and one of James's own relations, Lawrence Quinn except these men claimed to have been nowhere near the hut. In an effort to test James Earsman's claim, Tracker Riley was given one of Les Brennan's shoes and he made a search of the crime scene and surrounding area. While Tracker Riley turned up a lot of tracks, not one of them belonged to Brennan, and this would seem to have cleared him. More damning for James Earsman was that, in between his initial stories and his later version accusing Lawrence Quinn, he'd actually asked Quinn to come and stay at his house. If he'd really believed that Quinn might be a murderer, why on earth would he ask him to lodge with him? What the police also couldn't understand was how it was possible for James Earsman, who'd been standing outside Old Jack's hut, to have been punched by an assailant standing inside. 
The case against James Earsman was circumstantial and largely based on the conflicting accounts he himself had given, but in April 1936 it was enough to convince a jury of his guilt and he, like his son 15 years earlier, was convicted of murder and sentenced to death with the punishment then commuted to life in prison. The circumstances of the murderous Earsman family ensured the case was well covered by Sydney's newspapers but even it wasn't as sensational as the disappearance of Ruby Green some four months later. On the evening of the 26th of August 1936, this 22-year-old maid walked out of the Dubbo shop where she worked and lodged and seemed to simply vanish. She was soon the subject of a statewide search, headed by veteran detectives from Sydney's CIB. At first, they hoped that Ruby Green was simply sick somewhere or suffering from a loss of memory. Then the possibility of suicide was raised, but her brother, to whom she was close, said that would have been totally out of character. For nearly two weeks, police followed up leads and sightings across the state. A Detective Sergeant McCarthy, who was one of the most experienced homicide experts with Sydney Police, remained convinced that Ruby was alive. Nevertheless, to explore all possibilities, on the 8th of September, he ordered the Macquarie River be dragged around Dubbo Township. But Tracker Riley, with his understanding of this waterway, from which he'd recovered many bodies, believed his police colleagues were looking in the wrong place and at the wrong depth. Alec thought Ruby Green wouldn't be found with grappling hooks dragging across the bottom of the Macquarie near the town. She'd be on the surface and several miles downriver. And that's where he and his 15-year-old son, Alexander Jr., who he was training to be a tracker, went searching with their boat late on Thursday the 10th of September. Starting at a spot about five miles below Dubbo, father and son worked the banks for three miles. Then, late that afternoon, they saw Ruby Green's body snagged on tree branches 15 yards from shore and partially submerged. Except for her overcoat, she was still in the clothes she'd been wearing when she disappeared. Sydney's Truth newspaper on the 13th of September reported, quote, Had it not been for the outstretched branches of the fallen tree, the body might have gone many miles downstream. On the other hand, it might have remained where it was for much longer had it not been for the keen vigilance of the black tracker. It was in a position that made it very difficult to see. Ruby Green's body showed no physical signs of violence, and a post-mortem found that she hadn't drowned. But Ruby Green had died as the result of an acute hemorrhage caused by an incomplete operation, which was the polite term back then for a botched abortion. The following day, Tracker Riley's investigations revealed how this poor young woman had wound up in the Macquarie. About a mile upriver from where he'd found her, Tracker Riley discovered drag marks leading from a nearby road to a place where the bank rose 40 feet above the water. There, on a ledge, he found a woman's handkerchief with R. Green written on it. Twelve feet below the lip of the bank, Tracker Riley observed a big dent in the earth. Beneath that, at the water's edge, was a smaller hole in the mud, with strands of a woman's hair encased in the muck. Ruby Green had been dragged from a vehicle and unceremoniously dropped from the high riverbank. Her body had thudded into the earth, 12 feet below, and then kept falling and gone headfirst into the mud at the water's edge. 
There, she'd been carried away by the current. It emerged that Ruby Green had been seeing a shearer named Michael Ryan since Easter. In July, she'd told him she was in a certain condition, that is, pregnant, and he'd taken her to see a 44-year-old Dubbo woman named Inez Evelyn Clark. Inez Clark was known as the dog woman because she showed dogs, but her sideline business was alleged to be illegal abortions. In Michael Ryan's version of events, the procedure she performed on Ruby was unsuccessful. Ruby Green then wrote to tell him of a second failed attempt, and he wrote back to her saying he hoped the next time would be successful. Quote, I hope you went to the dog woman. The game does not seem fair when all the inconvenience should be parked on you, dear, so let us hope it will be a better job. Inez Clark denied ever having known Ruby. This was even after notes in her handwriting addressed to Ruby were found. Confronted with a reference she'd written for Ruby after employing her as a maid, Inez did remember knowing her briefly after all, but she denied performing any procedure on her, even though a witness claimed to have seen Ruby apparently leaving Inez Clark's home the morning she disappeared, looking ill and being helped by a man. As we heard in the episode The Murderous Mrs. Mitchell, proving who'd caused deaths arising from illegal abortions was legally very difficult, and when Inez Clark went to trial on the 15th of October 1936, the Chief Justice, Sir Frederick Jordan, directed an acquittal because of the scanty material the police had as evidence. Tracker Riley had done everything he could for Ruby Green, including testifying at the inquest, but whoever was responsible for her death would never be brought to justice. Illegal abortionists were difficult to put behind bars in 1930s Australia, but so were people who broke the law but were suffering from mental illness. In the majority of cases, this was probably as it should have been, but Albert Andrew Moss exploited this legal defence in New South Wales to an incredible extent and with ultimately tragic results. According to a jail entrance record, complete with mugshots, found at Ancestry.com.au, Albert Andrew Moss was born in 1880 at Burraway and recorded his first conviction for forgery and uttering at Dubbo in 1902, for which he got 12 months in prison. But after that, this career criminal, when facing charges ranging from theft, forgery and false pretenses to assault, sexual assault and attempted rape, would turn on a raving lunatic act for the police, magistrates and medicos. He even went so far as to chew on soap so he'd froth at the mouth. Moss's mad Mossy persona actually worked, with doctors again and again ordering him committed to asylums rather than prisons. There, Moss would revert to more normal behaviour, be declared sane and be released. Sometimes this took years or months, but other times it was a matter of weeks or even just days. Incredibly, from 1911 onwards, Mad Moss had pulled this off a dozen times. Here's a snapshot from the most prolific part of his crazy acting career. Moss was certified insane on the 23rd of May 1917 and committed to Callan Park Asylum in Balmain. Just five days later, on the 28th of May, he was declared sane and released. 
The very next day, the 29th of May, he was certified insane at Darlinghurst Reception House and committed to Gladesville Asylum. Less than five months later, on the 5th of October, he was declared sane and released. On the 19th of August 1918, he was again certified insane at Darlinghurst Reception House and was sent back to Callan Park. Four days later, he escaped. Four months later, he was again certified insane at Darlinghurst and put back in Gladesville Asylum. This revolving door process continued for the next two decades. Moss's final committal was on the 19th of January 1938 when he was certified insane at Broken Hill and put into the Orange Mental Asylum. There, as an attendant would later testify, Moss behaved rationally and carried out his duties without causing any trouble. Just shy of nine months later, on the 15th of September 1938, Albert Moss was declared sane and walked free. With just over one pound, a train ticket, and not much more than the clothes he was wearing, he returned to his old stamping grounds and set up a camp at Max Reserve at Narromine. There, having no tent, he slept on a rough bed of hay and even had to borrow a frying pan from a neighbouring old-age swaggy named John Neville. A few months later, men started to go missing in the area. The first was a 41-year-old leather worker named William Bartley. Until November 1938, Bartley had been living in Lidcombe in Western Sydney before he'd set off on his new bicycle looking for work. He first went north visiting a friend near Curry Curry in the Hunter region before heading west to Dubbo. He arrived at Max Reserve on his bike on the 10th of December and camped near where Mad Mossy had set himself up. Over the next few days, William Bartley looked for work in town and tried to sell some of the plaited leather goods he was so good at making. Hearing of Bartley's skills, a local labourer named George Carpenter on the 13th of December visited the camp to ask him to plait a leather rope and saw Moss sitting nearby under a pepper tree. But when, as arranged, George Carpenter came back on the 16th of December to collect his rope, Bartley and Moss were both gone. What he did find, though, was a blood-soaked newspaper and a patch of dried blood on the ground. George Carpenter apparently alerted police to this, but when they went to investigate, they didn't find anything and thought nothing more of it. Perhaps they should have, though, because the next day, the 17th of December, Moss rode into Narromine on a newly acquired bike and went to the Federal Hotel where he tried to sell plaited leather belts and a plaited razor case. Failing to sell these, he got drunk enough to get himself arrested and the constable who locked him up recorded that he had these items in his possession along with a not insubstantial cash sum of £4.7 and six. When Moss returned to Max Reserve, his neighbouring swaggy, John Neville, asked about the bike. Moss told him that Bartley had given him the bike and all his possessions just before he took off back to Sydney to have a good time because he'd won third prize in the lottery. Soon after this, Moss gave Horace Riley, one of Tracker Riley's sons, a dozen leather plats and asked them to sell them for him at two shillings each. The boy sold all but one, giving the money and the remaining plat back to Moss. Later, Tracker Riley had to have thought this was a creepy close call. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In mid-December 1938, a 55-year-old gold prospector named Timothy O'Shea arrived at Max Reserve. This bloke, who wore distinctive tinted eyeglasses, was reasonably well-off for this time and place. He had a sulky, a horse and a pony, and a sizeable roll of cash that he, rather unwisely, showed off, saying he'd gotten lucky at the Dubbo Greyhound races. O'Shea also had a red dog named Minnie. Not long after Timothy O'Shea arrived at Max Reserve, other swaggies saw a big bonfire which blazed all through the night. The gold prospector was never seen again. But his sulky horse and pony were, being driven around by Mad Mossy, who also now had O'Shea's gold prospecting dish and his red dog. When his inquisitive reserve neighbour, John Neville, inquired how he'd come by Tim O'Shea's possessions, Moss explained he'd traded a motorbike and some camping gear for them. O'Shea, he said, had gotten word of a gold strike in Western Australia and raced off on the motorbike to find his fortune. One night soon after, Moss paid John Neville a visit and pulled out a bottle of wine. As they talked by the campfire, Moss asked Neville if he knew, quote, old Jack Hewitt, who was murdered at Gilgandra. Neville hadn't known him and said so. According to Neville, Moss then said, quote, It was a cowardly murder. It is preying on my mind. I know who killed him and could put my hands on them at any time. Newspapers would later speculate Moss might have been making some sort of confession here with the whole preying on my mind bit. But the list of his mental asylum stints published many years later in the Sunday Sun and Guardian put Moss inside Gladesville Asylum at the time of old Jack's murder. Saying he could, quote, put my hands on them at any time might have been a reference to Lawrence Quinn and Les Brennan, the men James Earsman alleged had killed old Jack. But this had been widely reported and doesn't mean that Moss had any sort of inside knowledge. But what Moss did next seemed to confirm that he was a violent psychopath. He said to Neville, quote, You remind me of my dear old dad, and then attacked him, kicking him in the head and face and sending him sprawling. As Moss continued the assault, Neville grabbed the wine bottle and smashed him on the head. Put off, Moss retreated and left Max Reserve the next day. But he was soon back in Narromine with his sulky and horses and bicycle and showing off a newfound stash of cash, which he boasted was more than £75. Moss returned to Max Reserve in early January 1939 and set up camp near a local man named Thomas Robinson. Robinson was 68 and though he owned a horse and sulky, his only income was a pension he collected every fortnight in Narromine. The two men fell in together and then fell out, with local residents hearing them arguing several times late at night. Moss then took to stalking Robinson, following him around in O'Shea's horse and sulky. Robinson was so alarmed by this that he confided his concern about Moss to locals, telling one woman, quote, If he calls at your house, put the dogs on him. 
I was hunted by him all night. Then the men appeared to have patched things up and were seen camping together near Brummagen Creek Bridge. It was here on the night of the 21st of January that locals saw the glow of another big bonfire. Asked about it the next day by a swaggy, Moss said he'd been burning rubbish. After that though, Tom Robinson wasn't seen again. When asked about his mate's whereabouts, Moss's story varied. Sometimes he said Robinson had gone to Orange Base Hospital to see about his bad back. Other times he said his sometimes mate had taken off for a stint in, of all places, Orange Mental Asylum. And to others he again invoked the lottery story, saying Robinson's brother had gotten lucky and he'd taken off to Sydney to share in the good times. During early 1939, an Aboriginal man named Walter Taylor, who also lived at Talbrego Reserve, had several encounters with Moss, who now had with him a red dog he called Mate. Talking about war, Moss said to Walter Taylor, quote, War's a funny thing. You can burn men easily, except the teeth. Taylor asked him how he knew. Moss said, quote, I should know. I've burned many of them at the war. The thing was, of course, that Moss had been in and out of Sydney's mental asylums for the entire duration of the Great War and was far too young to have served in the Boer War. Then, on the 2nd of February, Walter Taylor had a few drinks with Moss, only for Moss to suddenly turn nasty and threatening, swearing in front of Walter's wife and children. When reproved, he said, I'll fix you. The next word wasn't published by the newspapers. Taylor took his wife and children away from the camp, and when he returned, Moss said, quote, I'll fix you, again a blanked out word, you're not the first I've killed. Another report quoted Moss saying, you wouldn't be the only blanks I've cleaned up. It's not certain what these insults were, but from the context, they'd appear to be racially based, the implication being that Moss had previously murdered at least one Indigenous person. Brandishing a revolver, Moss later came looking for Walter Taylor, calling out, Walter, where are you? Taylor told him to put the gun down and come and have a go man to man. Moss didn't, and Taylor reported him to the police. Detective Sergeant Frankish of Dubbo Police responded to the complaint and Taylor led him to Moss's camp. Moss claimed, I've got no gun, but I had one once at the war. Taylor protested, You had a gun all right. Detective Sergeant Frankish searched the camp. He didn't find a gun, but he did see two bags similar to those used by cyclists. He also noticed the red dog tied up. To be fair, there was no reason to think either of these things was suspicious at that time. What might have been concerning was that as Detective Sergeant Frankish searched, Moss walked about muttering and laughing for no reason. While Walter Taylor would later be credited with being the first to raise the alarm about Moss, no further police action was then taken. It wasn't until a white man, George Carpenter, spoke up again that police looked at Moss more seriously. George Carpenter was the man who'd ordered the belt from William Bartley and seen the blood on the ground at Max Reserve. As it turned out, he'd also known Tom Robinson for 30 years, so when he saw Moss with what looked like his friend's horse and sulky and dubbo, he couldn't help be suspicious. On the 21st of March 1939, he confronted Moss, who denied the horse and sulky belonged to Robinson. 
Moss even went so far as to say that he'd raised the horse from a foal. And George did have some doubts because the sulky's wheels were different. They'd been painted yellow. Moss told Carpenter that he didn't know where Robinson was, then variously said the old man had gone to Dubbo and to the Orange Madhouse. He said they'd had a row because he'd told Robinson his name was Clark, but then a local bloke named Paul Olson had blown that story by calling him Moss. At mention of Olson's name, Carpenter claimed, Moss added, quote, Paul Olson's crossed my path for the last time. To which George Carpenter replied, You shouldn't say things like that. Only for Moss to respond, quote, It'll only make the baker's dozen. The baker's dozen. Thirteen. This was later interpreted to Mad Mossy confessing to have killed twelve people already. Over the next few days, George Carpenter got a closer look at the horse and sulky and became sure they belonged to Tom Robinson. What was also worrying was that the old man hadn't collected his fortnightly pension since the 12th of January. Carpenter took his concerns to Dubbo Police, and on the 11th of April, Detective Sergeant Frankish and Tracker Riley went to Moss's camp. Detective Sergeant Frankish called out, Are you there, Moss? Moss came out and sat in a crouch, saying, I know you now. You came down with Taylor to my camp. Detective Sergeant Frankish told Moss he had information that Tom Robinson was missing from Brummagen Creek. Moss muttered the name Tom Robinson a few times and then said, quote, I don't know him. Do you think I killed him? Apropos of nothing, he apparently added, quote, I know a young man named George Bartley. Moss was arrested on charges of having stolen goods and being a vagrant and taken to Dubbo Police Station. At his camp, police collected all the possessions he'd somehow accumulated in the past few months after starting out with nothing and doing no work. An intensive police search for Tom Robinson began as stories of other vanished men began to filter in. Police learned that Moss had sold Bartley's bike and some of O'Shea's camping gear. These and the various horses and sulkies and the red dog Moss had given away were rounded up to be used in evidence. Detective Sergeant Frankish questioned Moss about Bartley and asked if he knew where he was. Moss allegedly replied, quote, You need not look for him. You won't find him. He's gone. He denied selling his bike. Shown the suitcases and clothes of Bartley's he'd had in his possession, he claimed to have bought them. Shown the plaited razor case he tried to sell, he allegedly said, quote, That's nice work. I do a lot of plaiting. I have had it for years. Detective Sergeant Frankish talked to two young boys who said they'd seen a foul-smelling bag in the river around the time Bartley was thought to have disappeared. When the police officer asked Moss about this, he allegedly said of the Macquarie River, They won't find his body here. He's dead all right, but I didn't kill him here. Dozens of witnesses came forward or were found, many testifying that various items had belonged to the missing men and a number saying they'd seen Moss with each of the men just before they'd vanished. On the 13th of April, Tracker Riley went to the Max Reserve camp where Timothy O'Shea had disappeared. There, in and around the fire, he found the teeth and bones, which would be confirmed as being human, along with the coat and eyeglasses identified as having belonged to O'Shea. 
Going to the Brummagen Creek campsite where Tom Robinson had last been seen with Moss, Tracker Riley and the police found a homemade paintbrush smeared with yellow paint. This was the same paint that had been applied to the wheels of Tom Robinson's sulky. From Brummagen Creek, Tracker Riley followed sulky tracks, tracks that were three months old, five miles south to the Manor Railway siding, where an old campsite was found, with another homemade brush yellowed with paint, along with old boots and a hat that were identified as having belonged to Tom Robinson. From the Manor siding, Tracker Riley followed sulky tracks a distance into the hills before he lost them where rains had washed them out. An intensive search of these hills involving 50 police and civilians over the next two weeks would find nothing further. As that search was progressing, Moss offered to take police to the places he'd camped. On the 18th of April, he went with them to Brummagen Creek and promptly turned on the Raving Lunatic Act. Moss plucked a flower from a plant and started munching it, saying, quote, "'Good lettuce.'" Then he pointed at an empty tree branch and said, crow, 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 even though there were no crows to be seen. Musing at a patch of ground, he muttered, grass, grass, grass. Then, police alleged, Moss confessed to murdering Robinson, saying, quote, I don't know what happened, but I killed him all right, but I can't say what I did with him. There wasn't enough wood to burn him. I must have put him in the river. I can't say what part of the river I put him in or what I did with the body. After this confession, Moss was charged with the murder of Tom Robinson on or around the 21st of January 1939. The next day, Moss allegedly told police, quote, I'm not mad and I want to tell you why I acted mad yesterday. I have done the mad stunt before. Once when I was charged with killing a dog at Condoblin, I was sent to the asylum. I have put it over the doctors on other occasions. I'm not mad, but if you call off the doctor and get me out of this observation cell, I'll make a full confession. Police said, no deal. Moss allegedly ran his mouth anyway, saying, quote, After I killed Robinson, I took him in a sulky and put him in a tree. He said he'd take the police to this location, but when they took him up on the offer, he was unable to find the tree. Moss asked, quote, Did Alec Riley follow my tracks from the camp near Manor? Told that he had, but had lost them after a while, Moss mused, quote, Yes, there's been some rain since then and blotted out the tracks. I put the body in one of the old shafts that are about there. While we can't be entirely sure about Moss's mental state, these wildly conflicting stories about what he'd done with Robinson's body might have been him trying to lay the groundwork for an insanity defence. The searches of the hills outside Dubbo continued through April into May, and then in June police dragged the deep waterholes of the Macquarie River. When these operations were hampered by large logs and debris, they used gelignite in the hope it'd dislodge bodies, but it didn't. William Bartley, Timothy O'Shea and Tom Robinson were never found. Moss had been born and lived in these parts most of his life. While he'd left a trail of evidence, from subtle sulky tracks to blatant possession of dead men's goods, he'd somehow managed to successfully dispose of three bodies. Then again, he'd had two big fires, three months head start, and miles and miles of Macquarie River landscape to work with. 
But what had been found by Tracker Riley and other officers, along with Moss's confessions, the stolen possessions and the testimony of dozens and dozens of witnesses, was enough for police to also charge him with the murders of Timothy O'Shea and William Bartley. On the 3rd of July 1939 at Dubbo Police Court, Moss caused a sensation when facing committal for these killings. When the O'Shea charge was read, he jumped to his feet, grabbed the dock and yelled insults at police while continually repeating, quote, I did not kill him. Moss's history of faking insanity was well known by now. And in the months he'd been held in custody, the Crown had been sure to assess his mental state frequently. Now the government medical examiner told the court he'd seen Moss six times between the 18th of April and the 30th of May, and on every occasion he'd been sane, rational and well-behaved. That was until this very morning, the morning of the committal, when he was suddenly incoherent, repeated himself constantly and seemed not to recognise the doctor, even though he had on every other occasion. As soon as the doctor had finished his statement, Moss turned it on. Here's how the Dubbo Liberal and Macquarie Advocate newspaper reported the scene. Quote, Shouting at the top of his voice and using vile language, Moss started to tear off his shirt with both hands. He ripped out large pieces and was acting very violently when he was grabbed by five police and hurried from the court. Another doctor told the court that, in his opinion, Moss was feigning insanity, and the magistrate then ruled that the case would go ahead. Mad Mossy wouldn't escape criminal trial this time. In September 1939, Albert Andrew Moss was tried for the murder of Timothy O'Shea at Dubbo Court. It was the first murder trial in New South Wales to take place without a body having been found. Though Moss was being tried first on this charge, evidence and testimony relating to the other missing men was allowed because the cases were so interwoven and the deaths had all occurred in the same area and in such quick succession. Speaking in the dock, Moss claimed the police had forced his confessions or made them up wholesale. Specifically, in relation to the O'Shea charge, he repeated his claim that the man had traded him the horse and sulky and camping gear for a motorbike so that he could light out for his fortune on the Western Australian goldfields. In this vein, Moss had even instructed his solicitor to place an ad in a Western Australian newspaper asking O'Shea to come forward. That's the thing though. Despite the huge publicity the case of the missing men received through much of 1939, O'Shea never did reappear, nor did William Bartley or Tom Robinson. In the last week of September 1939, after a seven-day hearing, a jury found Albert Andrew Moss guilty of the murder of Timothy O'Shea. Justice Owen sentenced him to death and said, quote, in my opinion, the police in charge of the investigation are deserving of the highest praise. Their efforts have been responsible for having a daring criminal brought to justice. With Moss sentenced to death, the Robinson and Bartley cases weren't pursued. In February 1940, Moss's death sentence was commuted to life in prison without the possibility of release. And over the next 18 years in Long Bay Jail, he'd continue to claim, depending on the newspaper report, to having murdered either a dozen or a baker's dozen. If that was true, Mad Mossy would be our most prolific known serial killer. 
but no evidence was ever produced to support the claim he'd murdered anyone other than Bartley, O'Shea and Robinson. And given what a sloppy and disorganised killer he was over those five weeks in December 1938 and January 1939, it seems highly unlikely that Moss could have committed other murders at this time without leaving a trail that the huge police investigation into him and his known victims would have uncovered. That said, Moss did have a long and violent criminal career in the outback, and it's feasible he had killed other people whose status meant their disappearances wouldn't be investigated, such as itinerant swaggies or, as he apparently intimated to Walter Taylor, Aboriginal people. More than any other case, the Moss investigation raised the profile of tracker Alexander Riley. At the start of June 1939, the New South Wales Chief Secretary's Department promoted him to first-class tracker, the only such rank in the state. His pay was even bumped up by about seven shillings a fortnight. The Dubbo Liberal and Macquarie Advocate newspaper reported on its front page on the 3rd of June 1939, quote, Alec now is entitled to wear a white stripe on each sleeve of his navy blue tunic. He is an extremely popular officer. Tracker Riley was popular and accomplished, and in the coming last decade of his career, he'd receive further unprecedented official recognition. He'd also be haunted by the case of a little lost boy and be involved in another sensational and frustrating murder investigation before finally being betrayed by the very police force he'd served so faithfully and for so long. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The third and final part of this episode will be released next week. I'd like to acknowledge the very kind assistance of Tracker Riley's granddaughter, Auntie Helen Riley, and his great-granddaughter, Bernadette Riley, in the creation of this episode. If you'd like to know more about this and other Forgotten Australia stories, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page, Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.